Hello there and welcome back to Thinking is Cool, the show designed to make your next conversation better than your last. I'm Kinsey Grant, 27-year-old human woman and the host of this show. So back in October, I released an episode of Thinking is Cool that could only be described as the Helen of Troy of young but growing podcasts. This episode launched at least a thousand conversations by my count, and I'm sure devoted Thinking is Cool listeners can remember which episode I'm talking about. It was, of course, the Thinking is Cool exploration of the idea of living forever. You should listen if you haven't already. I promise it'll make the conversation you're about to hear even more interesting and thought-provoking. And as I say in the biz, a link in the show notes. But the thrust of this episode was about more than just the abstract idea of extending human life beyond our wildest expectations. It was about what happens when we try to do that. It was about the seismic shifts in social, psychological, ethical, and logistical aspects of our lives that would no doubt take place if those lives were extended from an expected eight decades to 18 decades. No other episode that I have released has caused as much uproar in my circle, not even the episode about porn. Family members and friends and many of you reached out to me with stunning ideas structured by the concept of dramatically extending human life. Ideas like what changes about marriage and lifelong commitment. Ideas about the expectations of the role work plays in your life if you don't retire till you're 160. Ideas about who might profit from the very human exercise of avoiding death at all costs for as long as possible. I fielded so many, wait, what? Text messages that week that I knew pretty immediately this episode would need a follow-up. And that's what we're doing today. We are continuing the conversation with someone whom I have long admired for her thoughtfulness, consideration, curiosity, and honesty. She's a journalist, producer, and incredible thinker. She is Cleo Abram, and she's truly an inspiration to me and to so many people around the world who want to get to the bottom of everything, who just want to know more. And as luck would have it, Cleo is gearing up to release her own exploration of life-extending technologies and what they mean for all of us as part of her brand new show. So today, we are going to continue the conversation about living forever by thinking it through the technology, the motivations, the everything with Cleo. Remember, nothing is off limits. Everything is on the table. Take it anywhere. And remember, thinking is cool, and so are you. So without further ado, my conversation with the inimitable Cleo Abram. So here we are. (laughs) Thank you for doing this. I'm so excited to talk with you today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Thank you. Now, Cleo, you are probably somebody who many of our listeners might even recognize your voice in just a couple of words you've already said. But just to uh, make sure we cover all of our bases, do you mind introducing yourself a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Absolutely. I am a video producer um, and a journalist. I have made work on a Netflix show called Explained, on a YouTube original show called Glad You Asked. Both of those were made by Vox on Vox's YouTube channel. And uh, people might have seen my TikTok as well. That's where I do a lot of my journalism now. And I think that we're about to lead into this, but I have recently left to start my own venture. So that's that's me in a nutshell. I would love to hear more about this. It's always exciting to start something new, but I think it's particularly exciting to start something new that is your own. So what exactly is this new venture? Tell me more about it. I was at Vox as a video producer for um, 
a few years, five years total at the company. I worked in development before becoming a video producer and I love making explainer videos. Like I just, I really found the thing that I want to do forever. Recently though, I left to go independent and launch my own show. And the show itself is something I've been very excited to make for a long time. It is going to be sort of the true explainer journalism that I've been doing for a long time in video, journalistically rigorous, but genuinely optimistic explanations about technology. Um, each episode is going to be a sort of five to 15 minute on YouTube or several minutes, multiple episodes on TikTok. It's going to be a deep dive into one technology or one idea that I find really fascinating and I think could be transformative for many, many people if it works. Something that could help us genuinely build a future that's better than what we have now if it comes true. And the show is called Huge If True. Huge If True. I love it. And I, I love the approach. I think that, you know, so often when we consider the impacts of technology on the world around us, which it's impossible to remove those impacts from our existence today. They are so infiltrated in everything that we do. We so often default to, well, this is so terrible and how bad things have gotten and how the negative externalities of technology impact our lives. But I do think it's important to recognize that there is so much potential that we often lose sight of when we have all of these gripes and necessarily so. There's a reason that we feel so fed up with technology at times, but I do think that it's important to focus on the fact that huge if true, you know, this, this could be huge. This could be a fantastic leap forward for mankind. And I understand that one of the uh, pieces that you're working on for huge if true has to do with the reason we are talking today, life extension technology. So I'm curious to hear more about why you chose this as especially one of your early adventures in this new series. Why did you want to explore extending life and the technologies and medical advancements that we have to extend life? Why was that so compelling to you in the first place? I chose topics based on what I know people to be thinking about and interested in. I have fairly large audience on TikTok that asks me questions. I have a lot of experience um, sort of reading the Vox audience and figuring out what folks that follow Vox on YouTube are interested in. And I know that they are interested in longevity and that this is a topic that matters to a lot of people. And I now have the privilege of truly like... I don't have a boss anymore. No one can tell me what to cover. And I get to follow my own curiosity. This is something that I find fascinating. I find that there's a lot worth explaining within longevity, not just because it's interesting science, but also because there's a lot of, as, as one scientist who I recently interviewed told me, there are a lot of charlatans. That was his word. And I think that is right. I think people have a natural, reasonable distrust for a lot of the commentary in this field because it doesn't necessarily come from scientists or it comes from people who are sort of misrepresenting what they're doing. It's sort of the, like, almost the quintessential snake oil, the the idea of living forever. So I think that that is a pretty ripe area when people care a lot about something. I'll just speak for myself. I, I can't think of anything more important than more time to do the things that I love with the people that I love. And so when there's something that people care so much about, but also kind of this thicket of conflicting information scams, um, that's a pretty ripe area for my kind of work. So that's what got me interested. And I completely agree. I think that to your point, what is there that is more important than this conversation? And, and of course, 
all sorts of conversations are important. I should preface by saying that. But I think that when we consider the impacts, and that's a lot of what this show, Thinking School, deals in, is what is the impact of this major shift, this paradigm shift, this trend, this idea? What is the impact on all of us? I think when we boil it all down, the impact is is certainly measured by how much time we have to have a conversation, how much time we have to vote for in, in every election, right? How much time we have to mitigate the negative impacts of climate change, all of it boils down to time. And so I think it, it makes perfect sense to start with something like this early in the the new adventure, the new series, to consider how important it is to, to get to the human side of this as well. And I want to talk about both today. I want to talk about the scientific developments and the medical advancements and the technology. But I also want to hear your perspective on the human qualities of this conversation about living forever, because I think that is is equally as compelling to me is to try to dig into why we feel the way that we do. So with that in mind, I want to try to treat this conversation in, in kind of a three-part approach. So we'll we'll do the first part of what does it look like, right? What is the, the idea of living forever? How are we interpreting that today in our modern times? The second part, I want to dig into some of the more specifics around those technologies and very importantly, who has access to them. I think that is a huge part of this conversation. And then finally, toward the end, I want to talk more about the human you know, motivations behind the idea of living forever, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. So with that, I want to kick off with a bit of a, a contextual thought starter. Uh, and this was something I ran into quite a bit when I was making the original episode that we're talking about today of thinking is called, you know, living forever and living longer are, are pretty different. And the concept of aging obviously plays an enormous role in that difference. And this was something people frequently told me or asked me about after the episode came out was, how are we viewing the difference between longevity and living forever? I think that that's, that's important. And there are two kind of separate schools of thought within the longevity community. Do we really want to have some sort of existence forever? Or do we just want to extend the human lifespan and compress morbidity so that dying is a lot less of a, an arduous type of process? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on this kind of bifurcation within the longevity community. To you, what is the difference between living forever and extending human lifespans? I think there are at least four different categories and separate conversations happening within the space of longevity, if you can even call it the same space. I read a great scientific article recently that categorized it using some characters from references that I recognize. So I'll, I'll try and do the same. First, you have the category of expanding lifespan. That is sort of the, how can we make sure that we live as long as humanly possible. In Gulliver's Travels, there is a character, a set of characters, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this word because I've only ever read it on paper, Strolldbrugs. Um, it's a category of people that live forever, but they age normally. So basically they get frailer and sicker forever. And it is this perfect example of how horrifying that would be. Like, I, I, no one wants that. Right. That helped me crystallize that, like, when we talk about lifespan, it's not enough by itself. Like, extending your lifespan is not a significant enough development if you continue to get frailer and frailer. In fact, there's a whole area of very serious and emotionally very challenging um, conversation in the medical community about how much we want to preserve lifespan if we are not uh, helping people live healthy lives if we're just sort of extending this is sort of the conversation around end of life care for example so that's extending lifespan by itself no one is really 
interested in that by itself, I don't think. Then the next category is extending health span. Your health span is what it sounds like. It's the time period during your life when you are healthy and that because it comes with a lot of different definitions, what is healthy, I consider that to be the time period during which you're free of any serious disease. Some people do focus on extending health span, but not particularly on extending lifespan. There's a novel, Dorian Gray, in which the main character stays young right up until the point that he dies. That's health span, not lifespan extension. That is an area that a lot of people care a lot about. Then there's the sort of combination of lifespan and health span. And depending on how long you're talking about extending both of those things, that gets into the conversation about living forever. But there's kind of this like Peter Pan category where it's very common to hear people talk about wanting to extend their health span and their lifespan. And it differs how long they're, they're actually talking about doing that. The final category that is that the scientists that I spoke to are very quick to say that they are not interested in uh, or not researching currently is the reversing aging category. This is like Benjamin Button. No one is really this like fountain of youth idea. I hear this term on television all the time in the story. There's this little waterfall of people talking about the fountain of youth. Not a thing. Like we're not, that's just not what serious scientists are talking about. What they are talking about, most of them, is a combination of health span and lifespan extension where we could, with some tools and technologies, try to delay the onset of aging. Okay. And and this is an important distinction to make, right? Because I think that one of the more interesting aspects of trying to figure all of this out as somebody who is admittedly young in my 20s. I, I don't really think about death all that often. Uh, I would say no more than the average person. The idea of aging as a disease, treating aging as something that is could be could be treated medically, could be treated scientifically with technological advancements, I think is an, an important shift to make when we're trying to fully wrap our arms around this idea of extending life or, or longevity in general in a more holistic way. Think about Alzheimer's and, and cardiovascular disease and cancer, so many in the medical community consider these side effects almost of aging. This just happens when humans near the end of their lifespan, and that is natural. And I think that we have to reconsider the ways that we approach just aging in general to, to better understand why those diseases matter. We have incredible bounds that we've made in the science world in terms of treating diseases like cancer to think about how different the treatment is today and hopefully how much different it will be 50 years from now. That's incredible to see that progress being made. But I think to consider that that is an effort to, in some ways, treat the side effects of aging is, is different. That's a different way of thinking about the problem. Definitely. We are now entering, just as a flag, the first area of major controversy within the longevity conversation. Like, whether or not you call aging a disease, even within people who care a lot about treating aging, is in and of itself a very controversial idea. There are people who believe that it is necessary to treat aging as a disease and to get the FDA to recognize that aging is a disease so that you can then have FDA-approved treatments for aging. Because right now, that's not aging is not a thing that you can treat. Things that help slow aging can be approved for other things like preventing cancer, for example, or can help with Alzheimer's, but they, but they can't be um, specifically approved to treat aging because aging is not a disease. However, there is also a school of thought within this sort of research community, equally serious people that you know, I listen to them and I'm very persuaded by who believe that we don't need to prescribe the term disease to aging. 
Not because it might not be helpful, but because people have a very negative emotional reaction to that. Like you and I maybe can't relate to this quite yet, but for someone in their 60s to be told that they have a disease naturally because of sort of who they they are, that our age is um, sort of very tied up in our identity, that's a really tricky thing for a lot of people. Um, right. And this school of thought within the medical community would say, we don't need to call it a disease in order to find ways to slow it because we actually have a word for slowing aging in medicine right now. It's preventative care. Like so many of the diseases that we die from are age related, correlate with the overall degradation of our cells. And so most preventative care is tied up in how to prevent the onset of those diseases, which relate to aging. Yeah. It's kind of this like ongoing, it, it seems like a semantic conversation, but it's really much, we're at the beginning of a very interesting time in this area of research. And the terms that we use, I think will matter. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. I think that these, these terms do define in a lot of ways the outward bounds of the conversation itself. And when we consider aging, I think in a lot of ways I can recognize I don't want to age the way that I'm expected to, right? I, I'm 27 years old. I can feel it in my knees that I'm 27 years old. <laughs> my body is different than it used to be when I was 18. And that's normal. I'm okay with that. At the same time, over the last decade, I've amassed so much more knowledge and experience and I'm so much more confident in who I am. You know, there are certain parts of the aging process that are in no way a disease. It's, it's so incredible that we get to learn more, that we get to become different people. And I love that part of aging. I can notice that I have less collagen in my skin, sure, but that to me is is no big deal, right? That is expected. I'm okay with that. I don't want to die of cancer. I don't want to yeah. get heart disease. Like that yeah. I think we can we can recognize that there's nuance in all of this and it's important to just dissect these individual words as we come across them because it is important. This is going to drive the conversation. And I think one thing that's really important um because I'm sort of the like I love explainer journalism. I really want to make sure that people have the like first couple building blocks of this conversation. Yeah. Um, and I only really got them after an interview with a doctor, um, who is like kind of the guy that you talk to if you want to learn about, um, longevity. His name is Dr. Dr. Nir Barzilai. Um, and he is, uh, running a, a trial, um, that I think we'll talk about later. But, um, what he explained to me that, was sort of a, a shift in the way that I think about aging is given that researchers aren't trying to reverse aging, like most serious people are focused on delaying um, some of the um, characteristics of aging. What researchers are trying to do is delay the, yeah, the effects of aging. Um, that mostly does not mean wrinkles and gray hair, like right. cos cosmetics are kind of a separate thing going on. Um, what researchers are talking about when they talk about delaying aging is as you die, the chance that, or as you age, the chance that you die goes up. Like that's fundamentally what we're talking about. Um, the chance that you die is the mortality. Um, specifically, the chance that you die from very common diseases goes up. We're talking mostly about cancer and heart disease. We're also talking about Alzheimer's. Um, so there are an enormous number of diseases that um, many of us will experience when we get old that are related to the fact that we are getting old, often in ways that we don't totally understand. Um, so the, the simplest way to explain what's going on is our body is accumulating damage as time goes on, um, and the diseases that most of us die from spring from that damage. And again, sometimes that hap is happening in ways that we don't 
understand. Um, so a lot of scientists, when they're talking about delaying aging, are working on delaying that damage as a way to prevent or postpone those diseases. Um, and to me, that was just a fundamentally different way of thinking about aging. Like whether or not you call it a disease, it is one of the underlying mechanisms for many of the diseases that most of us die from. Um, and so for, that's the way that most doctors I've spoken to frame it. Um, and I, th- I think that that will be the way that most of us think about it in the next five to 10 years, but it's just not really the way that I understood it going into this research. Yeah. I, and I, I think that that's fair. It's not how we are, are taught to interpret aging. You know, we're taught to interpret it as, especially as women, something to avoid like the plague, right? Like if you see that first gray hair, go ahead and call it a life. I, I fully 100% reject that. I reject Same. the notion that aging is a bad thing, but I accept the notion that the side effects of aging, to your point before, these, these, pieces that that all contribute to the damage of a person's body as they go through life, they're expected right now, but we are doing things to reverse that damage or, or reverse, I guess it's a bad word. We're doing things to delay that damage. I mean, it's way easier to, to recognize that we all think that this, that the risk of dying, increasing the risk of dying is bad. Like right. for most of us, for most of us who would like to live longer, you know, and so, or would like to live at all. Like the increased risk of death is bad. And I think, um, that for me helped separate it out from the messages that I've heard as a woman about aging, because Mm -hmm. like mostly we're talking about your risk of dying. And then also we're talking about the quality of your life while you are living from a health perspective. So are you living free of significant disease? Yeah. And, and I do think this is an important time to point out the reason that I even wanted to do this episode in the first place many months ago is because my mom is a huge proponent of holistic health. She's like big into like the alternative medicine Facebook groups, which for better or worse, I will admit, I do think that she has, has shown me and my sister, especially that there are ways to better understand the impacts of aging on our bodies, not just on our faces and in our hairlines and all of that stuff. Yeah. Right that our bodies are experiencing aging every single day. And there are things we can do to live a better life, to live a healthier life, whether it's, you know, taking my coconut oil every morning, like she's told me to for so many years, or making sure that I take vitamin D, like these small things that we do are in a lot of ways, efforts to delay that damage, efforts to live a healthier life now. And I think that the interesting part of this conversation that I didn't really get to in the initial episode was the idea that we do things every single day to extend our lifespans. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, germ theory or modern sanitation or, you know, the fact that I do take my vitamins every morning or that I try to exercise several times a week or that I eat leafy greens, like all of these things are in an effort to make this life better, the life that we are given and possibly extend that life by whether it's a couple years or a couple decades by some measure. And I think that's a really interesting delineation to make in this conversation. The things that we do every day are very different from these, these things that we consider to be sort of out there, these, you know, experimental medications and experimental trials. Like how do we draw that line? I think about it less as a line and more of a spectrum. Mm. So all of the the things that you described were scientific advancements that are without a doubt, like germ theory and modern sanitation and some of the other things that you cited are the reasons why I believe we have doubled our average lifespan globally in the last hundred years. Like we have made enormous advances in longevity through these things that we now think of as 
common sense or just the way that society works. Those were scientific advancements at the time. And frankly, they were disputed. They were discussed. They had to be, you know, implemented uh, and they had to become part of our infrastructure. For me, it's more that we are on a spectrum and the things that fall on that spectrum shift as we get more and more information as time goes on and science advances. So on the one sort of on one section of the spectrum, they're kind of like the choices that we make every day that don't seem particularly sort of new or scientific. These are, you know, the things like don't don't smoke, like exercise, eat a diet rich in vegetables and proteins, um, limit your alcohol, like slightly more experimental in the choices category as you move up the spectrum might be um, intermittent fasting is something that people talk a lot about. But that's still within the category of like, what can I do with my own body sort of and make some daily choices that might help or hurt my uh, likelihood of living longer. Then you get into drugs on the sort of more, the less, uh, if the spectrum is like less experimental to more yeah, experimental, I, was I guess, to in my head. a good word and I was like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have You one. kind of intuitively know what I'm yeah. talking about, but yeah. There's a set of drugs that have been on the market for a really, really long time and frankly are very low side effect cheap generic drugs. Um, many of those drugs are now being researched for effects on longevity. And then um, I'm less familiar with these more experimental drugs, but I assume that there are drugs that are in development that are newer drugs also focused on longevity. I hear their names sometimes in the news, but I would never be able to take those like fabulously expensive drugs that are big experiments. Then there's sort of the category of treatments. There's a bunch of research in, for example, removing senescent cells, cells that have stopped replicating, or getting toward the weirder, more experimental, more controversial side of the spectrum. There's like the whole young blood thing. So that's within the category of treatments. And then like way at the end of the spectrum, I guess I would call them like transformations. There's like uploading your brain to a computer or maybe a little bit shy of that is printing new organs for you. Just like all the stuff that you see in sci-fi that like, I don't know anyone who is currently experimenting with that. Right. Um, but I do know people that are on other parts of the spectrum. I know people that take some of those drugs. Definitely don't know anyone taking young blood. So that's not a good example. <laughs> Nor do um, I. But like, I know I lots and lots of people that do daily things and spend a lot of time thinking about like, what do I eat? How do I, how do I exercise? How do I make sure that I live longer? That's yeah. how I categorize this stuff on this like huge spectrum. And it shifts all the time. And I would say that sanitation used to be on the lower end of the spectrum and is now just off the spectrum entirely because we mm -hmm. all do it and we all understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a very useful framework for, for really perceiving all of this in, in the most complete way possible. And it's, it's interesting to think that on this same spectrum can exist, you know, waking up and going for a walk, but also like <laughs> uploading your consciousness to some sort of like AI, like that is so compelling it's a to me. Very big spectrum. Yes, it is. It is. But I, I think it's it's useful to recognize that there is so much conversation to be had around all of this. And you know, of course, there's like the and I know you're a, a famously fanatic sci-fi person. You know, this is something you <laughs> are are known to love and to think about the the like Ray Kurzweil of it all, and that people actually want to like cryogenically freeze themselves and upload their consciousness somewhere it's difficult as an everyday person to wrap my mind around that because that's not living to me. Living is like existing in this body and, and feeling the cold air when I walk outside of my apartment today, it's not necessarily my consciousness existing in some other form 
150 million years from now, right? Like that is so (laughs) weird to to kind of recognize that chasm. And, you know, I I think this of course brings up an important part of the conversation, which is who has access to, to this entire spectrum. We all, I think, have access to making daily choices. And and this, you know, I, I don't want to make any assumptions about anything like a healthy diet. I understand that not everybody has access to a healthy diet the way that I might, the way that many people listening to this show might. But I think we can all make the decision not to smoke, right? We can all make the decision to try to move our bodies. We can't all make the decision to access young blood, right? Or, or to take some of these experimental drugs because we don't have the resources to do that, whether that resource is access, whether that resource is power or money. And I think this is an important part of the conversation, which is, you know, who gets to access these most, uh, you know, maybe experimental is, is a good word here, but the most experimental of these longevity treatments or longevity uh, efforts, the access part of this conversation is important to me. And I think, you know, one that we often recognize that it exists today but the effects of the this difference in access, I think, will be felt many, many years from now. When we think about the people who have access to longevity or have the potential to live forever or even just live for 100 extra years today, what might the world look like if it's all, you know, the, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks of the world are the only people who get to extend their lifespans? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very interesting theoretical conversation that I see mostly taking place in sci-fi right now of like, what would it look like if we had sort of two classes of people, some of whom can live for a really long time because of their wealth? I'm reminded, though, of a there's a moment in my colleague Joss's episode of Explained about CRISPR. Mm -hmm. And there's an expert. He says something like, already rich kids are 10 to 15% healthier than poor kids. It's not enormous, but I wouldn't want to add 10 to 15% on top of it. And I think that really does apply to anti-aging as well. I think that he was talking about overall health while we're alive, but um, it is already true that the gap in life expectancy between the richest 1% and the poorest 1% of people in the U.S. is 15 years for men and 10 years for women. So, If we care about making sure that people have a shot at a full life, we should be very concerned about equity and food security and shelter and medical care right now. And it's definitely important to think about drugs that are potentially going to make people live significantly longer and take huge leaps in the next 20 years. Absolutely. But we are currently having this problem. And if we don't address some of the underlying issues, that problem will likely continue getting worse, whether or not we find some new drug that will help us live way longer. You could envision a world where there's a huge, there's an even large, there already is a huge gap. 15 years is insane. But that you could imagine a world in which there's an even larger gap in life expectancy between the very rich and the very poor without any drugs, just because Mm -hmm. of inequalities in um, the ability to get healthy food um, or exercise safely or um, not have smoking advertised to you when you're 13, you know? Um, So that's, those are the things that I think about. Um, And then of course, uh, on the sort of looking ahead, it is very important that we think about these things with respect to accessibility um, in longevity research and, and the fruits of longevity research. I think one sort of started, I wasn't that interested in like some of the very experimental, very expensive stuff, because I didn't perceive it as like related to me. Like I was interested in theory, but I, I'm never right. going to go take young blood. Like what the, no. Yeah, like, yeah. Stop. <laughs> However, it turns out that a lot of the most interesting, most popular longevity tools within the sort of community of like people that 
think about this on the edge, like Silicon Valley, wealthy people, like the, the sort of people that you might see in the news talking about longevity. Um, some of the most popular tools that they use are incredibly cheap generic drugs. Um, and there's a conversation about inequality in access to information, um, in access to prescriptions for those drugs. But what I am most interested in is not the like million dollar edge application of something that like maybe just Jeff Bezos will take. But I'm interested in things that are potentially applicable to millions and millions of people. Some of these drugs are already on the market and are pennies per pill and millions of people take them for other conditions. So it's just, it's an interesting bifurcation as well between the types of things that you're talking about. And like, yes, in many cases, the price of a very experimental drug or treatment might come down if it is used by wealthy people and then used by others. But like, even without that, we're, there are a lot of very interesting developments happening and things that many, many people could afford. And that's, that's really where I get interested. Yeah. And I think this, this almost brings us back to one of the very first ideas that we talked about today, which is the, the concept of why we are so, I don't know, interested in living forever, because all of these issues, all of these gaps, all of these uh, inequalities kind of come to life when we consider the very big problem of human lifespan. We see the technology gap, the information gap, the gender gap, the wage gap, the, the income gap, the, the education, all of these big gaps that are so important that we can recognize in small pieces, they really do all come together when we're considering the possibility of human life. And it's it's almost an, an awesome kind of conversation in the, the definition sense of awesome. Like, how, how to even start with this, I think, is, is a difficult question to answer. But to, to understand that we have a lot of these drugs that exist today that are, are within reach for more people than we might expect, I think, is something that people might be shocked to hear. We think about, you know, I know metformin is one that you've mentioned when we were talking back and forth before this episode, um, rapamycin, like all of these different drugs that have existed in different iterations for, in some cases, decades that are now being repurposed or, or reclassified as anti-aging or delaying the damages of aging, um, drugs that are capable of doing that. This is just new information to a lot of people and I think highlights the need to have conversations like this, to do what you do, to explain this to people because they just don't know. And we don't know. There's so much that I learned in making this and in having these conversations that I never otherwise would have come across. That is the perfect little plug for my new episode, which <laughs> focuses on metformin specifically, um, because it's sort of a very interesting example that that balloons outward to some of the big ideas that we've been talking about here. So if anyone is interested specifically in some of the very cheap generic drugs that are being tested for longevity now, like that episode might be for you. Yes, I cannot wait. I'm very excited. You know, as we, we kind of press up here on time, I, I want to take a moment to try to wrap our arms around this, this part of the conversation about like the why of all of this. It's, it's yeah. obvious. I think for most people, we can understand that we don't want to die. I don't want to die today. Like I, I would like to live for as long as possible in a, a healthy, happy way. I would like to spend as much time doing what I love with the people I love in the places that I love. But I'm curious why you think sort of in general, we are, are so preoccupied with this idea of extending life beyond what we would consider to be a normal lifespan. What do you think is the motivation behind this beyond the obvious of we just don't want to die yet? It's interesting. I almost think about it in the opposite way, which is like, I am amazed that we aren't all preoccupied with dying all the time. Like <laughs> I live my life with the knowledge that I will die sometime cosmically very soon. And I'm just fine. Like I don't think about it at all. Yeah. Um, and that is psychologically 
like a coping mechanism. If we thought about it all the time, we'd never get anything done. I think that it's very, very normal to want to preserve the only form of existence we've ever had. I think that the wrinkle that I would put in it is I care a lot about preserving the amount of time that I have, as you said, to be with the people I love and do the things that I love. That makes me significantly more interested in expanding extending health span than extending mm-hmm. lifespan. If I think about actually people in my life who have spent significant amounts of time in old folks' homes or who have sort of spent a lot of the end of their life not feeling like they were really living, like that's not what I want. And so I think when we think about extending lifespan, it's really important to think about what that means. If I take a very emotional, real thing for me and then try and apply it to some of these weirder elements, like I don't know if it would mean living if you uploaded your brain to a computer. If there is a way to do that and still feel like you have a body and then live for a lot longer, cool. Like I'm not, I'm not opposed. I just care a lot about what it means to live. Um, and I care a lot about health span as, as a result. And I've, I've seen some people that are very important to me in my life go through a sort of long period of extending lifespan without extending health span. And I, I think that's, I think that's something that we're going to have to grapple with. Um, a lot of us do in our personal lives, but something sort of, uh, as a category, we're going to have to deal with because that's only becoming more and more true. We can keep people alive for longer, but like, we really need to make sure that we're extending health, our healthy lives as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think a lot of people have probably experienced something similar. You know, for me, it was a grandparent who lived far beyond what I know from my grandmother would have been a happy life for herself. Um, yeah. because medicine could keep her alive. And at a certain point you have to wonder like, and of course we're, we're broaching a bajillion different other conversations to be had, but it's, it's an important point to make that we can recognize it personally in our own lives, but we have to think about it in the grander scheme of things. I recently did the 36 questions that lead to love the famous New York times thing. And one of the yeah. questions was with my boyfriend. I mean, we, we know a lot about each other, but we were like, this will be fun. We'll learn something new. And one of the questions was, do you ever think about how you're going to die? I had an answer and he didn't. And it was just all of a sudden, like, I, is this something that people don't think about all the time? Do I think about it too much? Do I, am I not thinking about it enough? Is my answer too telling of like what my life is actually <laughs> going to look like at the end? I don't know. But I hope that in listening to this, people kind of can, can understand that there is a really interesting connection to be made between our personal expectations of what life is and how long life can be and how joyous life can be with these bigger picture conversations that have to do with equality and with science and with investing in the right people and the right ideas. They are connected so, so deeply in one another. Um, but it's often, you know, it's, it's rare that we, we actually make that connection itself. So I hope people yeah. will, will walk away with that at least. And my final question, do you want to live forever? Not forever. I think that a limited amount of time makes for a better life. I would like to live longer. Yeah, I I do think that we are here for too short a time and there are a lot of people that I love and a lot of things that I want to do. And I feel like I would like more of that, frankly. I completely agree. I think life is, uh, is precious in a lot of ways because it is finite. And I think an infinite lifespan would, uh, would remove a lot of that. So, all right, this has been fantastic. I've learned so much. I cannot wait to to see your new project, to learn more about Metformin. I am like counting down the days. So thank you, Cleo, so much for your time and uh, for all the insight. Thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to listen to more episodes of Thinking is Cool. Thank you. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thinking is Cool and for continuing the conversation with me. This interview with Cleo struck me for so many reasons, but the biggest was that no matter how cutting edge our technology gets, we are all so painfully, almost poetically human. I hope this conversation inspired something in you. And if it did, you know I would love to hear about it. So slide into the DMs or email me at Kinsey at thinkingiscool.com and get ready to hear a whole lot more of these next 16 words in your podcast feeds very soon. Thinking is cool and so are you. I'm Kinsey Grant and I'll see you next time.